Let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, how thankful we are that we can come before you, that we can study this book of Daniel. We thank you for the love that you give us. And Father, even now, archaeology is, is establishing and proving true the book of Daniel, as we've just seen from this Biblical Archaeology Review magazine for this month that reestablishes or establishes the historicity of some of these people that Daniel mentions and the scriptures mention. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name that you'll be with us and guide us as we open your word. In his precious name we ask it. Amen. As we begin, we're going to do a quick review of chapter 11. Now, chapter 11, as you recall, was a very long chapter, very steeped in history. How many of you found that uh, pretty new to you, that you weren't familiar with all that stuff? It could get easily, you could get lost in it, couldn't you? Okay, and it's, it's, the way it's worded, it's uh, kind of tricky. In chapter 11, we find it outlines in detail the history of the world with 100% accuracy. This prophecy fills in the spaces that's found in the previous prophecies or visions. It fills in the details following that principle we talked about where repeat and expand. And here we find a struggle emerges between the king of the north and the king of the south. We went through that and discussed it. And that has been going on through the centuries and is even going on today. We find that it's a struggle between atheism. It's a struggle between uh, communism, liberalism. They're all manifestations of that struggle on one side. On the other side, we find apostate religion, apostate Christianity. Uh, we would often say conservatism on the other side. And they're struggling back and forth for dominance, who would be supreme. The papacy leads the anti-Christian forces against God's people in the end time and unites them against uh, the word of God. Now, the papacy and the false religions and philosophies will fall in light of Jesus' second coming. And so that brings us through a quick review of that chapter. Tonight, as we enter chapter 6, we're going back now to the time that King Darius is on the throne. Remember, we're following the kings. We're not necessarily following the historical order or the chronological order. Uh, Even the structural order, we're not following quite in succession. We're following the kings themselves who are on the throne. The particular experiences of the Hebrew exiles in Babylon singled out in these two chapters. When I say that, I mean chapter 3 and chapter 6. There's a parallel between them. You will find in the book of Daniel, remember I mentioned there's a lot of chiasms where this and this Uh, balance each other. Then this chapter and this chapter will balance each other. This one and this one. And notice here, Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 
have a lot in common. They begin with a negative note, but they end up with a glorious and miraculous deliverance in both of the cases involved. In the first, the trial involved Daniel's three friends and the fiery furnace, the trial they went through. The second involves Daniel himself. Now, Daniel wasn't there in chapter 3, if you recall. But Daniel is in chapter 6, and his friends aren't. They went through the fiery furnace. He goes through the lion's den. We also find that Dr. William Shea, who is a well-known Seventh-day Adventist uh, scholar, Dr. Shea is a very interesting person. I've met him before. He wrote this in the Abundant Life Bible Amplifier. Shea is both a medical doctor and a theologian and a minister. And in here, he says, the two stories contain a number of common features. Both start with an experience of persecution by the king who was reigning at the time. Nebuchadnezzar in the first instance, now Darius the Mede in the second. Both stories tell of a faithful courage of the Hebrews and their trust in God in spite of the circumstances. Both tell of the Hebrew exiles and how they were plunged into trials that were intended to take their lives. Both of these stories tell a miraculous deliverance. And in both cases, the king involved recognized the Hebrews' faithfulness to the true God as illustrated by their deliverance. You see the parallels between these? Not only do these two chapters deal with similar themes, they also placed uh, at complementary locations of the literary structure in Daniel's book. As we have seen earlier, the literary structure of the historical section of Daniel is carefully constructed to bring out the similarities between the chapters that are paired together due to common themes. In the case of chapters 3 and 6, the common themes are persecution and ultimate victory through faithfulness to God. Now, Daniel is broken up into two parts. One part is the historical information. The other part is the prophetic information. And as we look at the book of Daniel, people who say, well, the Bible is not divinely inspired, the very structure of Daniel shows that a lot of thought went into it. He didn't just sit down and write it. He had structure that was involved with it. And the book of Daniel is made up of stories and prophecies. The prophecies tell us what's going to happen. The stories tell us how we should respond when things happen, you see. So there's a a balance that comes out in here. Now, an interesting point. Chapters 2 through 7 are not written in Hebrew. They're not written in Babylonian. They're written in Aramaic. And the other chapters are written in the Hebrew. But it's interesting that there's even the language uh, he uses has a purpose. The historical section of Daniel 
2 through 7, was written in Aramaic, thus setting it off from the rest of the book. Likewise, the narratives in this section were arranged in a chiastic order in which paired narratives were located at similar junctures in that structure. In the preceding chapter, we saw that chapters 4 and 5, dealing with themes of fallen kings, comprised the two central narratives of that historical section. We come now to chapter 3 and 6, the intermediate narratives in this chiastic arrangement. The final part of this chiastic outline is treated in the next chapter, which would be chapter 7, which examines chapters 2 and 7 in terms of their description of fallen kingdoms. Now, if we were taking these in chronological order, obviously 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, like that, that's not the approach we're using tonight. But you can see that as it is written, we may wonder, well, why does it mention this king here? And then it mentions him back here, then it skips to another king, then it comes back. It's because it, it's dealing with it in this chiastic format, structure, literary. What we're dealing with is the royal nature, following the kings. But what he's talking about is the way the book is organized and put together. Okay? But the themes are there. Why? Because history has a tendency to repeat itself. And not only do we have to know what's coming, but we need to know how to react when they do. Let's look at Daniel 6.1. It says, It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. All right, 120. How was this arranged? Well, the king, of course, is at the, the top of the food chain. Under him, it will tell us in the next verse, that there were three presidents. Daniel, of course, became the first president. Each of those presidents had under them 60 princes. They're called satraps. And then below them, there were three sets of governors, 20 in each set. And so there were 120 of these. And of course, if you count the presidents, it'd probably be 123. All right, let's look at verse 2. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might not I might give account unto them, and the king should have no damage. What does that mean? It means that in this structure, they were all accountable and reportable to somebody above them. When it got up to the two presidents, there was competition between them. Not only that, too, but they had a tendency to charge more than the king asked for, and then they would keep the difference. They wouldn't be turning back to the king his full amount of taxes. And this is what it's referring to when it says that Daniel was put over them so that they might, the king might not receive any damage. In plain words, they weren't cheating him. 
They weren't defrauding him. Now, then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and the princes because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. He was going to make him prime minister, not just first president. He was going to make him prime minister over everything. Now, how do you think that this would set with the Medes and Persians? Now, you've got to remember that Daniel, first off, was a Hebrew. He was a captive. Not only that, but he was the prime minister of Babylon, which they had defeated. The Babylonians had defeated Judah, and now they had defeated Babylon. And instead of being put down, he's elevated. And those who were with the king from the beginning, they said, hey, look, we're loyal Medes and Persians. We were with you when the fighting was going on. We were with you when, when you took down the government that he was prime minister of. And you're making him head over us? You can see the resentment. You can see the jealousy that was boiling up. Not only that, too, but apparently the king didn't trust them because he knew them too well. He knew that they were a power-hungry. But it says that there was an excellent spirit in Daniel. And the king saw that. He was honest. Daniel had a very rare commodity called integrity. Integrity is doing what's right even when it's not popular. And here we find that the king recognized this. In verse 4, Then the presidents, the princes, sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find none occasion nor fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. I can imagine that they really tried hard after he went home at night, locked up his office, and made his way back to his home. I can just see them going in there, picking the lock, getting in. I don't know if they have flashlights or what they use, their lamps, whatever, looking over his books, checking his records. Daniel's got to be corrupt as the rest of us. And he's looking it all over, and all the figures add up. What do you know? Man, we can't even get him on that. Can't get him on his personal life. He's living a life of integrity. If we can't get him on his personal life, we can't get him on his professional life, what do we have left? Only his religion. You see, he was following a different law. He was following the moral law of God as found in the Ten Commandments. He was following the law of the Hebrews instead of the Medo-Persian law. You see, the Medo-Persian law, if you made a mistake, there was no room to ask forgiveness because whatever the law said, you can't change it. It's for good, you see. And you have to carry it through. So what you're seeing in this chapter is behind the scenes, you're seeing a battle between two laws. One is the law of God, which allows also for forgiveness. It also allows 
for God to work in situations where, where there's an injustice done. But the law of the Medes and the Persians, it did not allow for justice. You could do an injustice and you had to carry it through whether it was against your integrity or not. And look at verse 5. Then said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now it states right there what the issue was. It's the law of God. What was the situation in heaven? What did Satan rebel against? It was the law of God. He said, hey, we're perfect angels. You know, why do we need a law? I mean, we're perfect. We haven't fallen. We've, we do what's right naturally. And God put a law on us to be a shackle. No, he didn't put it there as a shackle. They had to realize that they too were not put beyond the ability to fall. You see, and with Adam and Eve, the tree was put there. He warned them about it because their characters were not locked so that they could not fall. They still had the power of choice. And so we find here that it's a battle about the law of God and who was going to rule, who was really in charge. Verse 6. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. Lie. They couldn't wait for him to get off the scene so that they could promote themselves to higher rank. They didn't want to go the way he was going. And so they couldn't get rid of the king, so they'll get rid of Daniel. Look at verse 7. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors, the princes, the counselors, the captains, have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into a den of lions. Now here again, it shows the lack of integrity on the part of these people. What did they say right there at the beginning of that verse? Matter of fact, at the very beginning of that verse. What's it say? All the presidents. Do you think Daniel was going to buy into this? Do you think they consulted Daniel? Matter of fact, they were ready to rub Daniel out. They were going to use it against him. So they're lying to the king right in the very beginning. And I imagine the king probably thought, well, if all the presidents, that includes Daniel, hey, maybe there's something to this thing. I'm so glad that these people love me so much, that they esteem me so highly, that they, they want to make me their God. Does he have an ego problem here? Okay. Notice also, it says... And to make a firm decree that whosoever shall petition any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, even the Persians, they didn't extend out a decree that long, a whole month. It's very interesting 
that the Medes appear to be tougher on religious liberty than the Persians were. How do we know this in history? Because when Cyrus, the Persian, comes to the throne, one of the things he does is he rebuilds the temples of these different religions that were torn down by the Babylonians. He rebuilds them so that they can worship. Matter of fact, he even does that with the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews. He even tells them they can go home and rebuild their temple, doesn't he? Cyrus apparently had a more tolerant attitude toward religion than the Medes did. Now, this is Darius the Medes. Who is Darius the Mede? Good question. You see, Cyrus, his grandfather on one side, Astogenes, he was the king of the Medes. His other grandfather, I don't remember his name, he was the king of the Persians. And Astogenes married his daughter off to the Persian prince. And Cyrus was born from that. Now, Cyrus was to be the heir apparent to both kingdoms. He spent part of his life in Media and the other part of his life in Persia. So he's familiar with both of the cultures. But his own grandfather, Stogenes, tried to murder him several times. He didn't want him to come to the throne. But it just so happens that Cyrus does come to the throne and he exiles his grandfather. Now, his grandfather also had a son. And there are those who believe that Darius the Mede was that son. It would be his mother's brother. And he liked him. He liked him. And Cyrus he had formed a co-regency with him because Darius now is about 62 years old when he dies. He's about, nah, he's about 62, I guess, when he, I don't remember if he was 62 when he came to the throne or when he dies. Daniel tells us how old he was. And I think that's when he came to the throne. About this time, Cyrus is about 40. So Cyrus is still conquering. Don't forget, Cyrus still had to govern Lydia. He had to govern uh, the rest of the empire, but he leaves his uncle in charge of Babylon to settle things down. And so Daniel and Darius, they became pretty good friends, just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, you see, because of his integrity. And so I should imagine that this man thought, wow, if Daniel thinks it's okay... Okay, I'll, I'm glad to be a god. You see, the Persians were very slow about making people gods. The Medes were quicker about it. And Alexander the Great, when he took over the Persians and the Persian Empire, he, uh, he picked up the idea from them that he should be a god. So this idea began to creep in quite early. And notice it was a capital punishment if you worshipped anybody but that God that they had set up, 
It was the death penalty. Now here again, we need to look beyond this. The law of God is at stake. In the end times, the law of God is at stake. It's a matter of worship. Will I worship the God of heaven and observe his law, or shall I observe in the end times another God and accept the commandments of men? There's a death penalty attached here in Daniel, and there's a death penalty in Revelation. So, how should we relate when faced with these kind of trials? Should we buckle and give in? Let's see what Daniel does. And so we find in verse 8, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Even the king could not change the law once he put his John Hancock on that document. He had to carry it through. Even if he didn't believe in the spirit of it, he had to carry the letter of it through. And so they have the king right where they want him. He is attacking a commandment of God in not having any other gods before me. Right? The first commandment. And I imagine he probably threw in a few images of himself around for people to, to worship too. I can't prove that, but I wouldn't put it past them. And so we find here, whom shall we worship? In the end times, it's a question of whom shall we worship? Who is the true Jesus? Who is the true God? Notice also that he writes a decree. There's a national law that goes forth that attacks worship. In the end time, there is a national Sunday law that goes through that attacks the commandments of God. You see, the Bible doesn't use that term, Sunday law, but we have reason to believe that's involved with it. And so we see the parallels that are coming up. You might even call it a chiasm. What the events that are building and the ancient times have their counterpart at the end time also building. Okay, as we look forth at number nine, it says, Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing, and the decree. He didn't think it through. He was acting on presumption. And then when he saw what was happening, he had egg all over his face. Look at verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, see, as soon as it was signed, Daniel said, whoops, well, that's the end of that. I know what, what's going to happen because the king can't get out of it. So what did he do? He went to his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Now it's very a lot of interesting stuff in this text. Number one is that once Daniel knew the writing had gone forth, he knew that he had to take a stand. 
He couldn't ride the fence. He went home to his house. Now, it's interesting that the buildings in that part of the world, they have a flat roof. And people will often go up onto the roof, and there's, in many of these homes, they had up on the roof just a little hut or house on the roof, usually made out of mud block or whatever. And there they would go in so that they could enjoy the breeze because it's hot in that part of the world. And they would have lattice window shutters or whatever you want. All right. Now Daniel could have shut those shutters and just gone in there and prayed silently, but he didn't. He opens them wide as usual. He wanted people to see him pray because he was the only witness in the palace to the true God. And if he shut it, he would be hiding and ashamed to admit that he lacked faith in God. He didn't change his habits at all. Now, the Jews at this time, they used to pray three times a day. And the morning offering and the evening offering were two times that were set aside in particular for prayer. The early Christian church used to pray three times a day. At the same hour, Christianity picked up this three times a day prayer habit, but it kind of faded into history. We must respect our Muslim friends because our Muslim friends, whenever it's the appropriate time, they'll spread their little prayer rug out and they'll kneel down where they're working, whether they're traveling or wherever they're at, in a restaurant, whatever the case may be. They will lay out the little mat, kneel down, and pray. And they will pray toward Mecca. Notice Daniel prays toward Jerusalem. And the Jewish people today have a tendency, I'm using generalities because, you know, some people may not, but generally they have a tendency to pray toward Jerusalem, uh, even today. And so we find here, this is a very ancient habit. And it says that he prayed and he gave thanks before uh, his God as he did aforetime. He did not change his habits. If you were put in a situation like Desmond Dost was, where you would be persecuted if you outwardly demonstrated that you were a Christian, would you try to hide it? Or would you continue your habits faithfully? The Lord blessed Desmond Doss as a result. And most of you are familiar with his story. But here, Daniel is taking a stand. Now, I can imagine that these folks, knowing that the king had signed this decree, they immediately run home And they stationed themselves around. I can see them peeking around the corner, hiding behind a bush, peeking around the corner of a tree, keeping their eyes on that upper room. 
to see what's going to happen. Sure enough, they see Daniel go into his house. He goes up to the roof and he walks over to his prayer house, his prayer closet. They say, aha, he's going to try to hide it. And we know what he's doing in secret. Boom! The shutters fly open. And they get a good view of Daniel because he's praying right before the window. He probably even had his arms stretched out so they wouldn't make any mistake that it's, here I am, folks. I mean, he wasn't doing it to show off. Don't misunderstand me. He wasn't doing it to be defiant. He wasn't doing it to be arrogant. Some people do. But he was doing it because that was his usual habit. And he was just being consistent, that's all. Then these men assembled. They found Daniel praying and making supplications before his God. Aha! The smoking gun, we've caught him. We've got a lot of witnesses. And then they quickly jog over to the palace. Verse 12. Then they came near and they spake before the king concerning the king's decree. Now notice what they say to him. Remember, old king lived forever. Listen how the tone changes here. Uh, Your majesty, hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. And the king said, yeah, I said that. And he said, the thing is true, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. So they're getting the king tied up in his own words. And then they say, na 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 Only they said a little, they said it in Aramaic. <laughs> okay, verse 13. Then answered they and said before the king, that Daniel... Notice that Daniel. You can tell automatically they've got spite in there. That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah. Now, they didn't say that Daniel, which was prime minister of uh, Babylon. They go back to him being a captive. They go back to his roots, okay? That Daniel, which was of the children of the captivity of of Judah, you know, that defeated nation whose God was defeated by the gods of the Babylonian, whom our gods defeated. You are a God, and you elevated him instead of us. O king, for the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. In plain words, this is how he's repaying you for your kindness to him. Then the king when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. Now notice, he wasn't mad at Daniel. He was mad at himself because all of a sudden he realized these guys made a sucker out of me. They made a fool out of me. But you know, whose fault was it? Whose fault was it? It was the king's fault. He let himself be flattered. Do you know that flattery is actually a form of hatred? You know, if a person comes and flatters you, it's a form of manipulation. It's trying to, 
to build up a false confidence so that they can use you to do what they want you to do. And he says, oh, and I made a fool of myself. And then it says, and he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him. And he labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. He went through the law books. He went through the records trying to find any loophole possible in the law. But these guys were smart. They had closed all the loopholes. There's no way the king could get out of this because after all, he's a god. And if he breaks the law, then he's admitting he's not a god. And these people are worshiping him. And you can see that this would lead to a rebellion. Look at verse 15. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed, not even by you, your majesty. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel, and they cast him into the den of lions. So he had to carry it through. And the king does it very apologetically. He brings them over to the lion pit. Now, the Persians in particular, also the Medes, I don't know which did it more, they were both very much into hunting. It was considered a royal thing to do, to go hunting. They have found records where um, the kings not only hunted lions, which was their favorite, they would hunt for leopards. They would even go after elephants. And if they conquered a king, they would have tribute. The defeated king would send them animals. And they would oftentimes have their own little family zoo for their family. But also they would show people all these exotic animals which show how they have reign over the whole earth for the most part. And it was a sign of prestige. And they would take and they would put them into the, the pit. Now, you've got to realize, we get the impression that sometimes that this is a cave and that there was an arena around it or something. But that isn't the way they had them. What they would do is, yes, there was a way for the animals to get in. There was a big open pit, but over the top of it, there was a a roof. And they would cut a hole in the roof, and then they'd drop the person down in there. And then the lions would have lunch. Well, at this point, we don't know how many lions were in there. It doesn't tell us. But there was enough that if they were hungry, and they were hungry, they would actually starve the lions before they threw anybody in there so that they'd make sure that they got a good feast. And so, now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now notice that. You've got a pagan king 
who's just declared himself to be a god, he's saying to Daniel, your God will deliver you. Because he can do what I can't do. You see, isn't that marvelous? And is this an act of faith on the part of this heathen king? And so we find here that the king is expressing faith that he will be delivered. Now, don't think that his faith, he wasn't a little shaky yet in his faith. Look at verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den. Okay, so they take Daniel. They probably weren't too gentle the way they put him down there. But don't forget, Daniel probably is well into his 80s at this point. I don't think they went heave-ho and threw him down like they did with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they tossed him into the furnace. I imagine that they let him down a little easier. But nonetheless, they dropped him down in the hole. And they put the rock over the top. Now, these men didn't even trust the king. So what would they do? After they put the rock on, they would melt wax. Each of them would have their own little candle. The king would too. He would melt his wax, and then he would take his signet ring, and he would push it into that wax. And they would do likewise. So that if anybody came and moved that rock, it's going to break the wax, right? And if they did get it right back in the right spot again, and they said, I'm going to melt the wax and smooth it out, and they'll never know I've been here. Ah, but if you go to smooth the wax, you're going to mess up the seal that was punched into it. And somebody would know immediately somebody's been monkeying with this thing. And the king would know they had, and they would know the king had if they came back and found it messed up. And so it says, And the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signets of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Daniel was in that lion's den. And it says, Then the king, verse 18, Then the king went to his palace, and he passed the night feasting, right? Is that what it says? No, he wasn't hungry. He didn't go home and have a big dinner. It says he's passed the night fasting. Fasting and praying. He was worried about Daniel. Neither were instruments of music brought before him. And his sleep went from him. He couldn't sleep. If he did, he'd have nightmares. What's happening to Daniel? This is an injustice, you see. It may have been legal. Everything was legal. But it wasn't just. What are we told in Scripture? It says that what does God expect of us? To love mercy, do justly, and walk humbly with your God. This is what God requires of us. And even though the king didn't know the scriptures, he knew that justice had not been done. Mercy had not been done. And Daniel was a man who walked with God. He deserved better than that. And notice what goes on from there. Verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto 
the den of lions. I imagine he's looking at his Timex and he's saying, man, we've got one minute before the new day. You know, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. He does the countdown and bing! As soon as that day is over, he springs into action. He has fulfilled the letter to the law. Now he can work on the spirit of it. Soon as he sees that the day has passed, he jogs as fast as he can down to the lion pit. Well, I don't imagine he was jogging alone because I imagine all, all the fellows who tossed Daniel in, I imagine they're looking at their old Timexes too. I don't think they had watches. They probably had sundials or something. Yeah, a wrist sundial or whatever they happened to have. And they also made a beeline down there because they knew the king was going to be there. First opportunity he could. And as soon as he gets down there, he says, all right, you guys. The law has been fulfilled. Let's see what happened. Then the king arose very early in the morning And he went in haste unto the den of lions. Verse 20. And when he came to the den, even before he opens it, he comes to uh, the lion's den. And it says, he cried out with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. Oh, Daniel, Daniel. You can hear the agony or the, the desperation in his voice. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest continually, able to deliver thee from the lions? He can't see down there. After they move the rock, don't forget, it's kind of dark down there in that pit. All he can say is, did your God deliver you? Now he just said, the night before, your God will deliver you. Now he's saying, did your God deliver you? Is that prophecy fulfilled? And he listens, turns up his hearing aid, and he listens very carefully. Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. Can you imagine the expression on the faces of all these governors and presidents They're going like this. (laughs) Look at the king. You know, he's hollering down there. And all of a sudden, they hear a voice coming out there. Yeah, live forever, O king. Then they go, and their eyes bug out and their mouths open wide. You can just picture it. Verse 22. My God hath sent his angel. Now, what happened in the fiery furnace? How many people did we throw in there? Did we throw three in there? Well, who's that fourth one? You see. And now in the lion's den, there's an angel in there with him. And he goes on to say, and he hath shut the lion's mouths. Now those lions were hungry. But they weren't allowed to bite them. That they have not hurt me. Now I can just picture him going over nice kitty. You know, petting the lions, or I don't know if you, uh, you better be careful you don't tempt them. You know, they still have claws. 
But still, they weren't able to harm him. It wasn't because they weren't hungry. It's because they saw an angel of the Lord too. Remember with Balaam? The donkey saw the angel when Balaam didn't. And Daniel, I don't know if he saw visually an angel in there, but Daniel, by faith, knew that something was happening that was out of the ordinary. For as much as before uh, him, innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, I have done no hurt. So what is he saying? Daniel is saying, he's giving his testimony. He says, I want you to know that the Lord delivered me because I'm innocent of the charges that they laid against me. Well, actually, technically, he wasn't because he did worship the true God when he was told not to. But he was innocent of trying to undermine the king and the kingdom. The king had undermined himself. And he said, and I have not sinned against you, O king, And I've done you no harm. So what did they do? Verse 23. Then was the king exceeding glad for him. And he commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no manner of hurt was found upon him. Because he believed in his God. Now I imagine when they tossed him down. You know for a man in his 80s. I don't care how high you drop him, even if it was only eight feet. You know, he could break a leg, he could get a sprained ankle or whatever else. But when they brought him out, how were they going to get him out? They probably dropped down a rope that had two um, loops on it. And you could put it under your armpits or you could put your legs in it and hang on. But what they would sometimes do is they would wrap that rope so it didn't dig into you. And then they would hoist him out. And when they get him up to the top, he's fine. What happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They came out of the fire. They were commanded by the king to come out. Here Daniel's commanded by the king to come out. They came out without even the smell of smoke on them. And here's Daniel come out. He's all together. He's got all his parts where they're supposed to be. And why? Because he believed in his God. Now, look at verse 24. And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel. Now, there are critics who say, there's not enough lions in the world that could accommodate this. There were 120 people. Remember when they all got together and signed uh, the, the decree, supposedly? Uh, they couldn't have thrown 120 people down there, plus the two presidents, 122. Thrown them down there. Don't forget their wives and their children, too. Those lions would have to have an awful big feast. And they, they say, well, there's not enough lions in all of Babylon that could have eat up that many people. But there's a couple of things we're reading into that if we say that. Number one, that isn't what the scripture says. It doesn't tell us how many lions were in there to begin with. Secondly, 
it doesn't say that all 120 people were tossed in. It says those that accused him, those who were spokesmen and said, we speak for everybody. But they didn't speak for Daniel. They were lying. Were they speaking for the 120 as well? They very likely were, but we can't prove that. So how many people were tossed in? It doesn't really tell us. But it says, And they cast them into the den of lions, them and their children and their wives. Now why? Well, I can't see them tossing in a little baby, can you? Poor little kid. Why would he have to be killed for what his daddy did? This isn't really a good picture of this. First off, these men probably weren't that young that they had little babies. They were probably older men. Secondly, they very likely went home bragging to their families about now we're going to get rid of Daniel so that we can control. So what's happening? Their wives and their children were also in on it. And as a result, they would suffer the consequences. And the lions had the mastery of them. And notice, were these lions hungry? Well, I don't know if they were hungry or not, but they were sure ferocious. It says, and they break all their bones in pieces or ever they came to the bottom of the den. In plain words, before they ever reached the ground, the lions had already broken their bones. So I'm assuming they were hungry. I don't think they just went snap like that. I imagine they took their teeth and... <sighs> Those lions were hungry. And every time they drop one in, they'd snatch him in the air. Notice 25. Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Now, if that was Nebuchadnezzar, he was very likely not say, peace be unto you. He would say, if you don't do this, I'm going to burn your house down. You see, I'm going to make your house a dunghill or an ash heap. But here the king says, peace be unto you. Isn't it interesting that Nebuchadnezzar's testimony before he dies, he says, peace be unto you. It showed that Nebuchadnezzar had changed. For Darius, this was his turning point. And then he goes on to say, I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the... He is the living God, not Daniel, but his God is the living God and steadfast forever in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed and his dominion shall be even unto the end. He is admitting that the God of heaven is superior to all the gods of the Medes and the Persians, including himself. And that God is in control even unto the end of the world. My friends, our God is still in control. 
It may look like the world's going haywire, but God is still in control. Don't ever forget that. Daniel 6.27 He delivereth and rescueth, and he worketh signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? And so God can perform miracles. And in the end time, when people are tested, we find that God delivers the faithful. He'll go with them through the trials. Verse 28. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And so Darius was only going to live for about another two years, roughly. It may have been three at the most, how you, depending how you're counting. This was a turning point for him. And I can see when we get into the kingdom, it's up to God who gets into the kingdom and who doesn't. That's not up to a preacher. But I can imagine when we get into the kingdom, Daniel will have the privilege of seeing two kings that he brought to the Lord. Maybe three, because I think Cyrus is going to be there too. Nebuchadnezzar, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus. Because he was faithful. You know, the Lord has called us. You wouldn't, you'd be surprised how many times your life will affect people and you don't even know the difference. I remember when I was a junior in high school, I was about to go off onto pantheism. And this one boy next to me was really into pantheism which means that God is in everything, and you're God, I'm God, everything's God. And I was buying into that. And it just so happened in our English class, and in those days, you could do that. In our English class, we got into a a discussion of religion. And there was a girl by the name of Bertha Canberg. And... She was always dressed very modestly, and she had a little Bible that she would have on her desk. And my English teacher, Mr. Pitnell, I believe he was Catholic, I'm not sure, but I think he was. Uh, after we would talk, he would say, Bruce, what do you think of this? And, you know, Joe, what do you think of this? And so forth. And ultimately, invariably it seemed, he would always come back to Bertha. They'd all tell what they thought about the uh, uh, subject. He'd go back to Bertha. He would say, Bertha, what do you think of it? And very humbly, she would just say, well, the Bible says, and then she'd quote the Bible. And I remember that particular day, she says, well, the Bible says, and she quoted from the scriptures, And I remember I took and I looked at her and I said to myself, good for you, Bertha. You just answered my question. And she turned me away from pantheism. I was raised in the church. He turned me away. I was raised in both the Baptist and the Methodist church. Turned me away from pantheism 
back to the God of heaven. And I haven't seen Bertha Kamberg since then. She doesn't know what I'm telling you. Can you imagine when we get in the kingdom? How surprised she'll be to see me there, of all people, as a result of her witness. My friends, be faithful. This is what Daniel did. And so as we summarize chapter 6, we put behind us the historical aspects of Daniel and we move on to conclude next week the prophetic aspect of it. So our summary, Daniel chapters 3 and 6 have a common theme. It looks like defeat, but it ends up victory. Darius the Mede wanted to elevate Daniel above the other presidents because of his integrity. This aroused the jealousy of the other presidents and the, the uh, governors, etc. Flattering the king's pride, the wise men caused him to violate the first commandment. God blessed and delivered Daniel because of his faithfulness under adversity. Darius recognized and honored Daniel's God, as we should today. Before we have our quiz, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your holy word and the faithfulness that we have seen on the part of your witnesses all through this book. The book of Acts is still being written today, the new book of Acts. And there will be many whose faith will be tried and tested in the future. Help us, Lord, to learn from these lessons, from these stories, these narratives, the kind of faith, the kind of men and women we need to be when the challenges of these prophecies come before us. Help us to be faithful to you that we may see people in the kingdom that we have influenced and never realized the fruit of our witness. Keep us faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Question number one. True, false. You got the paper in front of you. The king in this story is Cyrus. True or false? Number two. The wise men of the kingdom are actually attacking God's first commandment. True or false? Number three. The lions did not eat Daniel because they were not hungry. True or false? Number four. Daniel prayed four times a day. True or false? Number five. The king demonstrated faith in Daniel's God. True or false? Number six, the bonus point. The king wrote a decree honoring Daniel's God. True or false? Okay, and the answers. The king in this story is not Cyrus, it's Darius. That would be false. The wise men of the kingdom were actually attacking God's first commandment. True. The lions did not eat Daniel because they weren't hungry. That's false. They were hungry. Number four. Daniel prayed four times a day. That's false. It said he prayed three times a day. Number five, I imagine when he was in the lion's den, he was praying all night long, but that's an exception. Uh, 
Number five, the king demonstrated faith in Daniel's God. True or false? That's true, he did. And number six, the king wrote a decree honoring Daniel's God. And that is true. Next week is our last session. You can reread chapter six. We've already done chapter 11. We've done chapter nine. We're doing chapter 10 and 12. There's a reason why I'm putting the two together because there's a common theme that's being brought out in the both. And that will be our last session. Okay? And at that time, I'll have a little form for you to fill out how you want your name on your certificate, so forth. All right? Let us have prayer together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for being with us and blessing us. And Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Thank you for the amazing book of Daniel and for the amazing prophecies and amazing God who gave it to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Shalom.